0: Bibles now, we will have our time of reading from the scriptures in John chapter 1, as Jesus calls his very first disciples, John chapter 1, verse 35 through 51, our reading will come from the text after which John the Baptist has testified of Jesus in various ways, pointing to Christ and humbled himself he, in this particular text. Calls that the Lord is the Lamb of God, and his disciples begin to follow Christ. John chapter one, verse thirty-five. The text of Scripture reads Again the next day was John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. And they came and saw where he was staying And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which is translated Peter. Verse 43. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God descending and ascending on the son of man. Let's bow in a word of prayer together before we begin our study. (coughs) Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless us and pray that you would encourage us. And we pray, Father, that you would fill us with your Spirit and grant to us understanding that we might appreciate, O Father, the people whom you have chosen, that we might have an understanding of your word, that we might know you all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in this particular narrative, we th- see Jesus calling his first disciples. And when we think about the 12 disciples, or sometimes the 12 apostles, as they would later be recognized as, perhaps we're reminded of who they were. We think of them as Powerful individuals who were able to cast out demons, who preached to thousands and many came to know Christ, who healed sicknesses by the power of God. Because of their powerful influence, they influenced the world, they turned the world upside down. We think perhaps of all the churches here and in Europe that have been named after the Twelve. St. Andrew's or St. Peter's or whoever it may be, St. John's Cathedral. We think of all of the honor that has been given to them because they were handpicked by Christ. They seem perhaps larger than life. If one of the twelve apostles perhaps were to step into this room even today, we would perhaps tread lightly around them. That is often the impression that people have of the twelve that were chosen, the twelve apostles specifically chosen by Christ. But one aspect of the twelve that is easily forgotten, amidst all of the names they've been given, the title of saint, the churches that have been named after them, they were, for the most part, a rather ragtag bunch of men who were not of the caliber of the world. In fact, if the world were to look at them, well... They probably wouldn't choose twelve like these. They had rather colorful backgrounds. They had personalities which had a lot of baggage to them. They had all sorts of issues. They fought. They bickered. They didn't understand. They were people that we probably wouldn't have chosen if we were trying to choose ourselves. Who would be the twelve that would lead the church and impact the world? Would it have been them? Probably not from our perspective. But they had weaknesses and all of their weaknesses realistically simply stuck out like a sore thumb on the pages of the New Testament. So maybe you can identify with these twelve. One characteristic of them was that they were rather slow learners. They were slow learners. Jesus would say to them, are you still without understanding? Matthew 15. Do you not understand yet? Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Luke 24. Time and time again, they received that type of rebuke from the Lord. They were slow learners. They learned their lessons the hard way. When Jesus was talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What was he warning them about? He was warning them about the teaching that the Pharisees and the religious leaders would propagate. Beware of those false teachings. And the disciples, they would scratch their heads and they would think behind them. And the scriptures indicate, Jesus must be wondering about what we're going to do for lunch. How are we going to feed? Where are we going to buy food? When Jesus told parables, he told parables to hide the truth from the masses. And they were left scratching their heads many times as well. When Jesus asked them if they were able to drink the cup which he was about to drink, <coughs> which is metaphorical for his death, they answered, Yes, without fully understanding what it meant. Only a year later, after the resurrection, did they fully grasp the understanding of what Christ meant. They were slow learners. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you can relate to their pride and their selfishness. They were prideful and selfish. When Jesus was talking about his imminent death, his death which was about to come, they were talking about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's like somebody who is about to die and your children begin talking about who's going to have the inheritance. They spent a lot of time talking about themselves jockeying for position. Remember James and John? They asked their mother, "Mother, why don't you go and uh, talk to Jesus before the rest of the guys are able to, and ask him if we could sit on his right and left hand on the throne?" And the disciples were incensed that the brothers had beaten them to the punch. Peter, in particular, was so bold to say, "Even though many will fall away because of you, I will never fall away." Matthew 26:33, of which he did. Temporarily, Maybe you can relate to their pride and their selfishness. <clears throat> maybe you can relate to their smallness of their faith. Four times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. And in Mark, how is it that you have no faith? Here was the presence of Jesus who performed miracles and signs and wonders that we've never seen raising the dead. And they had little faith. They could ask God for anything just by tapping Jesus on the shoulder. And yet they had such little faith. Their faith, like many, rested on themselves and what they saw. And Peter climbed out of that boat on the stormy sea and he walked towards Jesus on the water and once he took his eyes off of Christ and focused on the storm he began to sink because he lost his perspective and fear and doubt gripped him oh he of little faith when the crowds were there everyone was on board when Jesus was arrested everybody ran they abandoned him Peter outright denied him In fact, Jesus, after he was crucified, after his crucifixion, some of them went back to their old work, fishing, fishing. Only to hear Jesus call from them on the shore, in which he was sitting making breakfast for them, calling them to come in, and they realized that it was he. They had little faith, often filled with doubt. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you can relate that many times they lacked power. Many times they lacked power. They tried to cast out demons and could not. They didn't think to pray and ask of God for power and His help. In fact, they didn't know how to pray at first. Jesus had to teach them. When Jesus told them to stay awake, to be alert, to be ready at night, oftentimes they fell asleep time and again. Three times when He asked them to pray. Three times He asked them Many times they asked them, watch for temptation. Be careful about temptation. But when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane, how did Peter respond? Took out his sword. And said, I'm going to take care of this myself and lopped off the servant of the high priest's ear. They lacked real power, spiritual power, because they failed to ask of God. So as we look at this list, maybe you can relate of the apostles that were chosen when they were first chosen. Slow learners or lacking power, prideful, selfish, or having small faith. Maybe you can relate. How many times has the Lord needed to teach us the same lesson over and over again because we have failed to learn? We look at their backgrounds And as we look at the text here today, we see this is a narrative of Jesus calling the very first disciples. Jesus calling people in which they recognize He is the Lamb of God. And we've talked about how that is a designation. That He was going to be the sacrifice for the world for sin. That is what they used lambs for. And two there that began to follow Him were two of the apostles that were going to be His twelve. We look at the disciples, we learn that the word disciple simply means a student or a learner. It was that which they were learners, they were following. And it wasn't unusual for a rabbi to have students following them. They asked, where are you staying? And the implication is that they wanted to follow Jesus. And he said, come and you will see He didn't tell them all of his plans beforehand and said, this is going to be the schedule. This is what are the expectations. These are the things that will be here. You can decide and just figure it out if it's worth your while or whatnot. He said to them, come and see, follow me. They were an interesting bunch, these 12 This doesn't list all of the twelve. In fact, in the book of John, it does not list all of the apostles in one group as it does in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. In the other lists, there is a comprehensive list of all the twelve that were chosen right up front. And it's interesting when you look at the twelve apostles because the twelve are grouped into three groups. Three groups of four apostles each. Three groups of four apostles each, and in each of these groups, at the head of every set of four, the first name is always the same. And they go in order of closeness to Christ. They go in order of how close they are to Christ. Christ had his inner circle in which the scriptures designate or delineate that they were, spent a lot of time with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that first four, Peter, is always the head of that first group. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And here in this text we see that they were the first to be called. Andrew, as we look at a profile this morning of these particular apostles here in this text, to understand what the text is saying, we look at their background and we look at what the scriptures say about each of these apostles. There were two that followed Christ here right off the bat after John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, and the first was Andrew. Andrew, it says in the text, was Peter's brother. Peter had a brother. His name was Andrew. In the New Testament, he was more in the background. A person who served in the background. He wasn't in the limelight, perhaps overshadowed by his brother, Peter. But he was close to Christ. He was in that first group. It was Andrew who brought Peter, as it says in verse 41. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and brought him to Jesus. Andrew was very much a person who lived in the shadow of Peter. His brother Peter had a fishing business that they shared in the home in Capernaum. And they were friends with two other brothers, James and John. They fished together. And all of these four were in the inner circle of Christ's closest disciples. Andrew, though, perhaps was the most quiet, the least contentious out of those four He was perhaps the one who they all got along with, the least resentful. The scriptures indicate that perhaps he was not one to be lent to jealousy of any type. The Bible never specifically points out Andrew, in fact, as ever having done anything wrong, which doesn't mean that he was perfect in any sense. It simply doesn't highlight that much different than his brother Peter, however. Some people, they're quick on the draw to get their shots off, to speak their mind. But Andrew was not one who was there. Peter was the one, his brother, who preached at Pentecost. And thousands came to know Christ. But Andrew, he was the one who was bringing people one by one to the Lord Jesus. It was Andrew who brought Peter to Christ. It was Andrew who found the boy with five loaves and two fishes, who eventually fed thousands. It was him Whom they went to and he brought people to Christ one by one. Many people were like him. Many people were like Andrew, perhaps you can relate. Bringing people to Christ one by one. Then there was John, the brother of James. John, who doesn't mention his name of himself here. You notice in the scriptures that I shared with you, every time the name John is mentioned here, in the book of John, it is in relationship to John the Baptist, with the exception of Peter's father, who is also named John. But John the Apostle, who wrote this book, doesn't name himself, but he is a second person here, as related by other passages in the New Testament. Him and his brother were known as the sons of thunder. They had a temper. They wanted to call down fire upon the Samaritans for not showing hospitality to them. He was zealous for the truth, John was. When you read the New Testament, you realize there's a number of things that apart from Luke and Paul, he wrote the third most material in all of the New Testament. This Apostle John, who was the second to follow Jesus, he was passionate about what was true. Though he is sometimes known as the apostle of love, it was something that he learned later on in life. In fact, in Mark 9, he forbade a man from casting out demons in Jesus' name because he wasn't officially one of the twelve. Remember that story? This was the only time John speaks of his own accord in the New Testament record. And after Jesus' rebuke, I'm sure John began to change. But he was zealous for what was true. That's the personality of John. And he penned the very last book in all of the Bible, the book of Revelation, in which he wrote from the island of Patmos, when he wrote that book, that ended the canon of the scriptures. Those of you who have studied the epistles of John know that John began from a state of being known as a son of thunder, one who had a temper, one who wanted to call down fire, one who had a reputation to an apostle of love because when he wrote the epistles at the end of the New Testament, he wrote much about love, about how we love God and how we love others because God first loved us. He was that type of apostle as God changed his heart. People who are zealous and God changes their heart. It's not bad to be zealous for what is true. I remember when I was in seminary, one of the things that they shared with me was once you start coming out of seminary, you learn all of these new things and you're so enthusiastic to fight against all of the cults and to defend what is true. And that is not a bad thing, but it is oftentimes not tempered by love, not tempered by gentleness and how we share and people don't accept it because they don't accept us. I remember one friend, He so strongly believed in church discipline. The way he explained it to his girlfriend, it was such, in a harsh way, she made her cry. It was such an unloving way in which church discipline is to be what? A loving act in which we care for others. John needed to temper, needed to temper his zeal for truth with love. He also learned to balance his ambition with humility. Later on as well, he and his brother, they wanted to sit at the right and left hand of God, of Christ, as obtaining a position rather than being worthy of it. But later he writes here even in the Gospel of John. Not once, you notice, does he write about himself in a way that promotes himself. In fact, he writes and refers to himself in the book of John as, quote, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was only in the gospel of John that he writes about Jesus washing the feet of the disciples as well. You see, maybe you can relate. A person like John, zeal for what is true, perhaps had a temper, yet had to learn and God taught him later on about what it was to be humble, what it was to write about others, and what it was. And finally, he obtained a reputation as being known as the apostle of love. That is the second person here. The third was Peter. As Andrew, it says in the text, he went and found Peter, Simon Peter. Peter was married. If you didn't know that, Luke chapter 4 tells us that Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 9.5 that Peter took his wife on apostolic missions. Peter also had the name Simon Peter. It was Simon when Jesus was pointing to his former life. That's when he referred to Simon. It's like calling somebody by their former name because you're relating to them, their carnal self, how they used to be. But he also gave him the name Peter or Cephas, which means rock. Because he wanted him to be solid and stable like a rock. And in time, God changed the life of Peter to become like that. But he was a bold apostle. Many of you know that he was an apostle who often spoke before he was, had thought things through. Or many times, perhaps, he was speaking the things that he was thinking and many of them were not in God's will. Making promises such as, I'll never deny you. And not keeping them. Perhaps you can relate. He was a person who learned things the hard way. Peter would say profound things. He would say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God in Matthew 16, 16. But then he was rebuked by Christ a little bit later after that. In one dialogue, Jesus would call Peter blessed and he would be given the keys of the kingdom. And then, and then Peter well, was trying to protect the Savior from the cross. That was Christ's calling. Christ rebukes him and says, Get thee behind me, Satan, meaning don't stand in my way. Peter had to learn how to be submissive, how to restrain himself. In the book Twelve Ordinary Men, it reads... Most people come with natural leadership abilities, do not naturally excel when it comes to exercising restraint. Self-control, discipline, moderation, and reserve don't necessarily come naturally to somebody who lives a life at the head of the pack. That is why so many leaders have problems with anger or out-of-control passions. Peter has similar tendencies, hot-headedness tends naturally going to go with the sort of active, decisive initiative-taking personality that made him a leader in the first place. Such a man easily grows impatient with people who lack vision or underperform. He can be quickly irritated by those who throw up obstacles to success. Therefore, he must learn restraint in order to be a good leader. The Lord more or less put a bit In Peter's mouth and taught him restraint. Unquote. He was the only one to rebuke Jesus for saying that he was going to die on the cross. And oh, how wrong he was. Yet in the book of Acts, you think to yourself, the stories of the book of Acts. It was Peter who boldly proclaimed Christ. Who Jesus was and thousands came to know the Savior. Do you know how Peter's life ended? We know that Jesus told Peter that he would die. He would die as a martyr, John 21. But The scriptures don't record the death of Peter. All the records of church history, however, indicate that Peter was crucified. Eusebius, who is a church historian, he cites the testimony of Clement, who says that before Peter was crucified, he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his own wife. As he watched her being led to her death, Clement said... Peter called to her by name saying quote remember the lord when it was Peter's turn to die he pleaded to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die as the lord Jesus had died and thus he was nailed to a cross head downward would our faith be such strong such that if our spouse was going to be put to death we would say to them simply remember the lord Peter's life, his life could be summed up with the final words of his second epistle. And second Peter, quote, "...grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Savior." That's exactly what Simon Peter did. He became the rock of the church. Perhaps you can relate. Peter dominated the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. But there was Philip, whom we see in the text here... The next day, verse 43, he purposed to go into Galilee. He found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. That is the next name that is listed here. Philip as a profile was a practical man, hands-on, pragmatic. His name means lover of horses. He wasn't the same Philip that we see in the book of Acts who was one of the deacons. This Philip was different. He was from the same town as Peter and Andrew, as the text says, and perhaps he knew them for a long time. But the Gospel of John gives us a glimpse of this apostle. One author writes, quote, Piecing together all that the Apostle John records about him. It seems Philip was a classic process person. He was a facts and figures guy, a by-the-book, practical-minded non-forward-thinking type of individual. You know someone like this? He was the kind who tends to be a corporate killjoy, a pessimist, narrowly focused, sometimes missing the big picture, often obsessed with identifying reasons things can't be done rather than finding ways to do them. He was predisposed to be a pragmatist and a cynic and sometimes a defeatist rather than a visionary. Unquote. Philip was one of the first of whom Jesus said, follow me, you see. And he did. He sought Christ. And after he found him, he found Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, of course, he was a skeptic too. But he said, come and see. You know, see, P- Philip was the type a person who was overly concerned, as I mentioned, oftentimes about the bottom line. In John chapter 6, there's an interesting incident. If you turn to John chapter 6 with me, just a few chapters over. John chapter 6, verse 5 and following. There's an incident regarding Philip in which there's a 5,000 men. And notice that's 5,000 men. So there were probably another 5,000 women and children as well as families gathered together to listen to Jesus. And they were following Christ. And there in verse 5 of chapter 6 of the book of John, <coughs> the text says, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip... Where are we going to buy bread so that these may eat? Now, why did Jesus ask that? He says so in the next phrase. This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. But this is what Philip said. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little In other words, 200 days of labor and there's no way we can pay for all of these people to eat. How are we going to pay for that? It can't be done, Jesus. Now imagine that. Here, Philip has been with Jesus, Son of God, who has shown him great things, who has continued to teach him. It wasn't Philip who went out and found a boy with five loaves and two fishes, it was Andrew who found that little boy, and Andrew received the reward of faith. but it was Philip who looked into that and said, "How are we going to feed all of these people?" Philip fed into his head ascendancy, failed to see that the Savior of the world could feed thousands of people. He failed to understand Jesus, even in John chapter 14 verse six. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough. Jesus said to him, this is what he said to Philip, he said, Have I been so long with you and yet you do not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His work. He says to Philip, don't you understand? Philip, you have spent a year and a half to two years up until this point seeing Jesus in person, seeing His miracles, hearing of how He provides, seeing Him heal people, profound teaching. And yet he says... Jesus, 10,000 people, you know, 200 days worth. I don't have enough in my pocket to be able to pay for all of these people. What are we going to do? And by the way, someday you could show us the Father and let us know. Would you do that? His faith was God in a box. Faith was God in a box. Show me and I will believe. But still, Jesus chose him. It's one of the twelve. Think you can relate? Philip sought God. But then there was Nathaniel. There was Nathaniel who came next in the text. He said to him, Nathaniel, come. Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Can anything good thing come out of Nazareth? He's a friend of Philip's. Now, Philip appealed to him on the basis of the Bible. You notice, we have found him of whom... Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. See, in the scriptures he was referred to, meaning that Nathanael must have been a student of the word of God. He must have known. But Nathanael had his prejudices. Nathanael had his prejudices. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, Nazareth was in Galilee. In the history of Israel... After they came out and settled into the promised land, they wanted their own king. And Israel was given three kings, Saul, whom they chose themselves because he was tall and handsome and looked like a king. Really wasn't all of God's will and later God rejected him for sure. Then there was Saul, Saul and then David and then Solomon. And after Solomon, there was a civil war in Israel and... And divided the nation of Israel into two parts, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Out of the twelve tribes, there were ten that occupied the northern kingdom and two that occupied the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called the kingdom of Israel and all of their kings after the civil war, none of them followed God. And so in 722 BC, God sent the Assyrians who were a wicked people to judge them, to bring judgment upon them. And when God sent a foreign power to judge a particular nation like Israel was judged by the Assyrians, what they did was they transplanted many of their young people. They transplanted a number of the Jews, deported them to their land, and imported their own people who would reside in the land and they would intermarry. They would intermarry. And in this northern area of Israel, that was where the Samaritans came from. And north of Samaria was Galilee. The further away you move from Jerusalem and Judea, the more disdain they had for the people. That's why when they traveled north, they... The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. They would take the long route. That is why when Jesus traveled and he went through in John chapter 4 and met the woman at the well, he went through Samaria, which was a very uncouth thing for the typical Jew to do because they just had discrimination against them. But here, Nazareth was in the north, even north of Samaria, in Galilee. And Galilee didn't have a great reputation and ironically where nathaniel came from wasn't too far from nazareth perhaps indicating there was some type of rivalry between the two but he had his prejudices against nazareth and he said can anything good come out of nazareth that's how he was he was a skeptic his prejudice but when jesus saw him he said <coughs> Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Indicative of perhaps the fact that Israelites had a reputation for having deceit. But he says, in whom there is no deceit. His heart was sincere, perhaps sincerely wrong in his prejudices. But unlike the Pharisees and unlike the religious leaders, there was no duplicity that he lived with. He wasn't pretending. He kind of let it all out. You could read him like a book. Prejudice at first, but he was pure in heart. And according to tradition, he ministered in Persia and in India. It's unknown what happened to Nathaniel. Church history, some accounts say that he was tied up, put in a sack and thrown into the sea. Others say that he was crucified. But either way, church history bears out that he was martyred for his faith. See, all of these that were called were not perfect. All of these who were called had faults. They weren't glowing saints that came with a halo and all worked up to be apostles. No, they were a ragtag bunch and there are a whole slew of others that I haven't mentioned because they're not here in the text. And yet Jesus called each of them. And when they called him, they called him rabbi. And they followed him. Jesus foresaw them showing his deity. And reminiscent of the time when Jacob saw Jacob's ladder. The angels ascending and descending. Same too. Christ mentions that at the end of verse 51. That he was the savior of the world. These were people who needed a savior. And it reminds us of the fact that God can use people with faults like us. People who are slow learners. People who are prideful and selfish. People who were those who would say the wrong things. People who are stubborn. People who lack faith. Who say, how are we going to do this? People who have our eyes fixed upon what we can do and not what God can do. God uses people like that in spite of our failures. For it says in 1 Corinthians 1, For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. and The base things of the world and despised God has chosen... For the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. So don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged when you trip and fall because you've been trying so hard to do the right thing. Don't be discouraged when you fail and you disappoint not only God but yourself. Don't be discouraged because God can renew you and God can change you from being a man like John who was a son of thunder, who had a temper, who was prideful to have the reputation of being apostle of love, who was gentle and humble in heart like our Lord Jesus. God can change a person who always says the wrong things to a person who is bold and outspoken for Christ and God. Don't say to yourself, I'm not gifted, I'm not able, I'm not, I can't teach or lead, or I'm not good enough, because God can use you. Because the one thing that they all had in common was that they all chose to follow Christ. They were all disciples who were devoted to Christ. God can cause us to be just like them. Cause us to abandon ourselves, our own will, and say, yet not my will, like Jesus said, but thine be done. To deny oneself daily, to take up one's cross, and be willing to follow God. No matter who you are and what your shortcomings are, God by His hand can strengthen your faith if you surrender your life to Him. He can change you just as he changed each of these. Take away our prejudices. Take away the things that we always say wrong. Take away our stubbornness and our lack of faith and to cause us to be godly person. For each one of these, they left everything to follow Jesus. Come and see. Peter in Matthew 10 says, "Behold, we have left everything to follow you." And what did Jesus say? Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers and sisters, and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. There's a reward for following God, as God changes you and I, just like He did with these first disciples. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You know our hearts. Look into our heart, O God, and change us, mold us, and make us, that we might be people of great faith, of great spiritual strength, who look to you for help, provision, and may we be used greatly for your glory, knowing, O Father, that it is not us, but it is you who moves in and through us to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.